the way to think of this is the pregame. Michael Schur is a national political reporter for The Post. He's been looking at the very long and growing list of Republicans running for president. I am running for president of the United States of America. Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. I'm announcing today that I'm running for president of the United States of America. Yeah, the election is far off. But Michael says this is an important moment. Right now we're sort of in the, in the zone of, you know, insiders are, are sort of gaming things out. Everything's being set up. Donors are trying to figure out where they want to put their money. Uh, but you can learn a lot about how these races will develop. And there's a lot of tells uh, being given by the candidates uh, right now. And Michael says at this stage, a lot of the focus is on how these candidates compare to the clear frontrunner, Donald Trump. I think it's fair to say that so far, this has not been an issue-driven Republican primary process because the biggest issue is Trump. And do you want Trump? Do you not want Trump? How has he hurt the Republican Party? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, June 6th. Today, Michael breaks down what we need to know about the Republican presidential primaries right now. We talk about who the candidates are, what they're pitching to voters, and why this primary could be different from the ones before it. So, Michael, this week there has been a lot of news about different people either jumping into the race officially or planning to jump in the race for the Republican presidential primary. Can you walk me through who is officially running and in the race right now? I think the easiest way to do this is to think in terms of categories, because not all candidates are created equal and are competing on an equal playing field. This time you really have two clear candidates who are polling apart from everyone else. And that's Donald Trump, the former president, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Together, they poll about 75% of the Republican primary electorate right now. That's big. Then you have a second category of candidates who are polling in the single digits, meaning that they're known, you know, people are interested in them, people are thinking about them, but they're not really competitors yet, and they're waiting for the debate stage to really take off. Those are former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's sort of the, the upstart of the race so far, a businessman who's gotten some traction on the, on the campaign trail, and Senator Tim Scott, uh, who just recently got in, has a significant amount of, of, of money and is actually outspending everybody right now on television. And then below that, you have this other group of people polling at 1% or less, uh, who it's not even clear they'll be able to make the debate stage. People like former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who ran before, Larry Elder, a talk show host who ran for governor in California. Um, and then this week, uh, North Dakota's governor, Doug Burgum, has said he's going to get into the race. 
So on the one hand, to me, it doesn't seem so unusual for a lot of people, and this is a lot of people. Like the, I'm trying to count on my hand as you're going through the names. It doesn't seem so unusual for so many people to throw their hats in the ring when there is not an incumbent president. But then there is what I think of as the Trump factor, because for years, it feels like he's held such a grip on the Republican Party and so few Republican politicians were willing to criticize him or go against him. With all of these people running essentially against him and challenging him, does this mean that support for Trump is fading? Support for Trump has not faded this year. In fact, he's gone up in the polls, in the Republican primary polls, uh, since the midterm elections last year, where he was blamed by a lot of the party for the disappointing results. There was a point earlier this year that even Trump supporters said his his cap within the primary was probably under 50%. Uh, and that was a challenge for them because that means that if some other candidate can get all the other Republicans to support them, Trump would lose the primary. But right now we see in the polls he's polling over 50%. The big pivot there seemed to happen with the indictment in New York uh, on a business record violations related to a hush money payment. Republicans sort of rallied around him. What's interesting, and I've been in a number of focus groups and, and I've been watching the polls for a while, is there is real concern within the Republican Party about Donald Trump being the nominee again. But there still is a great identification and sympathy with Trump. And you hear in these focus groups, Republicans will say, well, I'm not sure he should be the nominee. And, and, then, and then the focus group moderator will ask why. And, and the answer will be because it's just been so hard for him. You know, people, have, they've just beaten him up so much. And, and so Republican voters, even if they may not vote for him again as the nominee, still identify with him, are very proud of their past votes for him, and still very much feel he is a victim of this sort of broader effort to, to put him down by the legal community, the media, um, the, the liberal establishment. Um, and so that, at least in the short term, has definitely played in his favor. It also raises this other question of whether the more candidates that are in the race, uh, the better it is for Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I, I just listed off about a dozen candidates. So that's, a, you know, 11 challengers splitting 50% of the vote. That probably plays to his advantage. And actually this week, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu announced he was not going to run for president. And that was the reason he gave. He said, you know, I don't want to basically be a spoiler here that makes it more likely that former President Trump becomes the nominee. And in fact, he said he expects to endorse. He expects to play a role in the campaign. He wants to help somebody, he hasn't said who it is, win the New Hampshire primary. Oh yeah, he can't win in November of 24. Oh, the math has shown Donald Trump has no chance of winning in November of 24. He wouldn't even win Georgia. If you're a Republican that can't win Georgia of November 24, you have no shot, and he's proven that. And so I think you're beginning to see allegiances being made on the other side. And it'll take a time, some time. We, we have plenty of time for this to happen. Um, but, you know, the, the deadline he gave is he said, you know, mo if, you're not, if you don't have a clear path to winning, you got to be out of this race by Christmas. Why does he not want Trump to win? Like a lot of Republicans, he thinks Trump has been bad, not just for the country, uh, but for the Republican Party. He blames Trump for the disappointing results in 2022, for the disappointing results in 2020. He's appalled by the president's role in the January 6th uprising at the U.S. Capitol. He just doesn't see Trump as being fit 
for what he believes are majority positions in a center-right country. And, and you actually hear that a lot from a lot of different candidates. And I think as this campaign progresses, that question of electability and will come more to the fore and, and is probably what this, uh, what this campaign is going to be fought over, at least for the foreseeable future. Right. And Michael, this is also where in the conversation, it's important, I think, for us to just make clear how early we are in the process, right? Like, we're listing off who's polling where, and and all of that could definitely change. So we just have to say that, that a lot can change. Right, Michael? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, I said earlier, the way to think of this is the pregame. This, you know, the campaign is set. We know who's running. They are running. They're going to the states. Ads are running. But voters aren't yet tuned in. Uh, voters tend to be very practical. They got plenty of time to decide. And then just to give you some context, it, you know, at this point in, the two, in 2007, in the 2008 race, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani was leading the polls. He had, he had about 30%. At this point in the 2016 race, uh, you know, Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida, was leading the polls. And number two was Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida. So the polls do shift. Now, what is different this time is there is, you know, a 500-pound gorilla here in Donald Trump that, that didn't exist in those two races. And, you know, and Trump is polling over 50 percent. And if you talk to the rival campaigns, they believe that there is a, a floor that Trump will not drop below something between 30 and 40 percent of the electorate because there's just a, a share of the Republican Party that that will never turn away from Trump in a, in a Republican primary. So he, he only has so far to fall. There's one person I, I want to talk about right now, and that is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Even before he made it official that he was running for president, his was a name that I would constantly hear as the best position challenger to Donald Trump. Michael, how did DeSantis become such a popular candidate among Republican voters, especially given, you know, how he's polling right now? I think there's two answers to that. The first is he won uh, in 2022 by a large margin in Florida in a year when Republicans were really frustrated and uh, Republicans want to win again. The second answer is that for the last two years, uh, he has been incredibly effective, probably more effective than anybody but Trump in channeling the frustration, the rage, the fury of the Republican base uh, into policy, into media appearances. He has a very close relationship with Fox News. And he's been able to seize on mostly cultural issues to really channel the frustration of Republicans and to deliver what, you know, the Republican electorate has wanted in most recent elections, which is someone who will dominate, sort of an alpha a uh, politician uh, who will dominate your opponents. I mean, the Republican Party right now is a, is a party that feels victimized. It feels it's lost status. It feels that the country is being changed underneath them without their, without their consent. Uh, it, it wants to fight back. Everyone knows if I'm the nominee, I will beat Biden uh, and I will serve two terms and I will be able to uh, destroy leftism in this country and leave woke ideology on the dustbin of history. And so DeSantis has shaped himself a public persona to sort of fill that emotional need. And I think arguably he's been very effective. Now, it hasn't yet translated in the polling the way he wants it to. It has definitely translated in the fundraising. He's got probably about $200 million now if you add together all his accounts. And he's been able to attract the attention of a lot of 
uh, you know, even former Trump advisors, media stars, and has been able to establish himself, at least right now, as the alternative. Michael, I think it's important to also walk through, and I'm hoping you can walk me through, the not just the messaging and, and all of that, but the policies and the issues that at this point you've seen define the early part of the race. What, what are some of those main political and policy issues that are dominating the conversation right now? DeSantis has sort of led the way here. He is, he's tried to, to, to bring himself forward into the debate by being more conservative, taking more radical positions than a lot of his opponents, um, and in some cases than Trump, and that includes deciding to punish the Disney Corporation, which has quite a big footprint in Florida, um, because it disagreed with him on one of his, uh, you know, school policies. They can keep trying to do things, uh, but ultimately we're going to win on every single issue involving Disney. I can tell you that. And and that has opened up a little rift in the Republican Party. You have Vivek and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and Asa Hutchinson all saying that they don't think it's conservative for a governor to use the power of the state to punish a private corporation because it spoke out against uh, a political policy. And then another issue, I think, is this question of what to do about entitlements. President Biden and the Democrats have basically taken the question of whether anything needs to be done to rein in spending on Social Security and Medicare off the table. They've said they're not going to touch it. They're not going to deal with it. Trump has basically jumped on board with that message. It was a message he had in 2016. He said Social Security and Medicare are, are not up for discussion. Under no circumstances should Republicans vote to cut a single penny from Medicare or Social Security to help pay— And then you've had to watch as these other candidates try and work their way into that. It's not exactly the conservative position. The historical conservative position is we have to rein in this. We want to shrink the size of government. And so— uh, Mike Pence, uh, most specifically, has been rather outspoken. Honest with the American people, I think we got to bring common sense, compassionate solutions forward uh, that that preserve Social Security for everybody that's on it now. For anybody that's going to retire in the next 25 years, it won't change. But for Americans under the age of 40, we got to do like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill did back in the 1980s. Larry, you were there. You saw it. Let's let's introduce some common sense reforms. For younger Americans, including... But he also hasn't backed away from his prior statements, which were that we're not going to touch it for current retirees or people who are about to retire soon, but we are going to look at the numbers again and address it for younger people who now – who would have years and years to plan um, for whatever changes we make. And so I think that'll be a big uh, dividing line uh, within the party as well. Michael, where do all of these candidates stand on the war in Ukraine? Because when that first started, there seemed to be a lot of unity among just like politicians in general about where where the country should be when it comes to supporting Ukraine. Um, it's been some time. There have been splits there. Where do the candidates stand on Ukraine and U.S. support? I do think Ukraine is kind of an X factor in this race because we don't know how it will develop. You know, right now... Americans are sort of divided on it, but they don't, they're not overly concerned. It seems like the Ukrainians are doing pretty well against the Russians. But it's very possible that things do turn over the next six months. It's an active war. It's an unstable situation. And that could really affect not just the primaries, but the, the general election. In terms of how Republicans are dealing with Ukraine, it's a really interesting debate, sort of along two lines. 
The first is whether the Cold War conservative Republican view of America's role in the world, which was strong national defense, you know, globally projected, should continue in some form. And that position has sort of been embraced by people like Nikki Haley, by Mike Pence, by Tim Scott, who supported President Biden's continued efforts to basically send weapons uh, and technology to the Ukrainian government and support their war effort. Former President Trump has refused to say whether he believes Russia should win the war or if Putin is a war criminal. For, uh, Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis referred to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a, quote, territorial dispute. Um, what do you think of that? I think that that's a mistake that too many have made. That's exactly what got the Europeans in this position with Russia in the first place, is that they're too trustful. You can't be trustful of a regime that goes in and tries to take away people's freedoms. There is, though, within the Republican Party, growing disillusionment with that and concern about continued funding um, and questions about whether that is even in America's role. And then, and then, and then this is the second axis is this question of whether the Ukraine conflict is pulling away from uh, the national security concerns that the United States has in Asia, the possibility that China will invade Taiwan in the coming years. And on that on that question of China, DeSantis has really um, begun to make the case that Ukraine should not be the priority, that we need to refocus our attentions elsewhere, and that investing too much in Ukraine actually hurts us on the more important battle that we're going to be engaged with, which is this battle for influence uh, with China. Um, joining DeSantis is Trump, who makes a variation of that, but Trump doesn't really <laughs> debate foreign policy in, in quite the same terms as other candidates. He, he tends to talk about it almost entirely in terms of sort of a great man theory of, of, of diplomacy, that he can just settle this, he can make the deal, he'll solve it. After the break, I talk with Michael about the Republican debates and how new rules could shape the field. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Let's pull out our calendars and get a clear sense of how this primary is going to unfold. Where and when will be the first primaries? So because this is America, the greatest democracy in the history of the world, we don't know yet. Most likely, uh, the first uh, caucus in the Republican primary will still be in Iowa, and the first uh, primary will still be in New Hampshire. Uh, and that will happen sometime probably mid to late January of next year. Uh, the reason for that is that the Republicans are going to be forced to schedule around the dates set by the Democratic Party. It's a much less competitive primary on the Democratic side. But they actually have a different schedule this year. They're using different states. 
And the state of Nevada, which Republicans also want to include in their early state voting, uh, is going to be set uh, by the Democratic Party to, to take place in the first half of February. And so everybody's going to have to sort of schedule around that. But but by tradition, both Iowa and New Hampshire wait a while before they finally schedule their actual dates because they don't want anybody else to jump the line. And and if anybody else jumps the line, they'll they'll beat them to the punch. So we expect you know mid to late uh, January is when we'll start seeing these votes. What about the primary debates? I remember back in 2015 and 2016, if we can all think back that far, there were so many of these debates, and the, I just remember these stages full of people. Um, do we know whether debates will even happen this time and what rules could be in place for who will be on those stages? We do. Last week, the Republican National Committee announced the rules for the first primary debate, uh, which will take place in Milwaukee at the end of August. Uh, to get on that stage, there's a, they're sort of imitating the way uh, Democrats approached this in, in uh, 2019. Candidates will need to prove they have a certain polling threshold they've met. Uh, right now, it's going to be about 1%. That probably means a much smaller initial debate stage than we've had in the last two cycles. Um, so they can probably fit everybody on one stage. Um, there's six people almost certain to make it, probably another three or four who could make it. So you're talking about you know maybe a 10-person stage at that point. The other thing I should mention is that for these debates, all the candidates have to sign a pledge that says they promise to support the eventual nominee of the party. And that is still a problem. A number of candidates have said they will not support or do not want to support President Trump if he becomes the nominee, uh, including Asa Hutchinson. Chris Christie suggested that. So how they sign those ple that pledge if they can make the debate stage is an open question. You know, the other issue here is that Donald Trump himself has said he's not sure he wants to debate. He, he's actually argued privately that the RNC should just cancel the debates. And so it may be that the initial debates don't include the person polling over 50 percent. Has Donald Trump said that he is going to support the eventual nominee if it's not him? He has not. And that's another interesting wrinkle here. It's worth stepping back here. Trump is just a different kind of politician because he can take back stuff he said and not suffer much political damage. He can say, you know... The sky is blue one day and the sky is red the next day and then go back to saying the sky is blue and and his voters tend to forgive him for it. So in, in the 2015 cycle, he said at one of the early debates that he was not going to support the Republican nominee. The Republican Party kind of flipped out and pressured him to sign a, a pledge. He did sign a pledge. He said, I'm definitely going to support the eventual nominee. And then, you know, a few months later, when it looked like Texas Senator Ted Cruz could win the nomination, he reneged on that pledge. He said, no, I, don't, I no longer... <laughs> I'm going to support Ted Cruz if he becomes the nominee. So it's very possible that Trump signs a pledge and it doesn't mean anything. Michael, looking ahead to the next months, uh, year, are, are there any particular issues or candidates that you're keeping a close eye on? What should we be paying attention to as these primaries go on? I would say there's a, there's a few big questions. So the first question is whether DeSantis can withstand the heat he's going to be taking from Trump over the coming months. I mean, for, at least for the moment, it's basically a two-man race. He's got the spotlight on himself. Can he stand his ground, maybe even grow his support, or does he begin to sort of wither and, and, and fall back? And, and we don't know what's going to happen there. The second question is, if he does begin to wither and fall back, 
who else can actually rise to be a real contender? And you have a sort of bullpen here. I mentioned Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, uh, Tim Scott, Vivek. They're basically waiting for that opportunity. It's very possible that one of them could start to rise, you know, for different reasons. I think the third question is, does the entire Republican primary begin to pivot more on an internal discussion about, you know, whether Trump is good for Republican politics or not? And and how do people who still have great affection for him, um, who are still very proud of their votes in 2016 and 2020, who, who approved of a lot of the, the Trump presidency, um, how do they sort of think through that issue? Because that really is the question right now that will determine whether or not Trump falls back below 50%, whether there really is a path uh, for him to be beaten. Michael, thank you so much for taking time and explaining this all to us. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Michael Schur is a national political reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh with help from Gabe O'Connor. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. If you want to show your support for Post Reports, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. It's a great way to back the work we do, including in-depth political coverage. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.